It's like, let's make snow Snowpiercer with no ideas. <laughs> but make it a Guy Ritchie movie. Hi, my name is Ricardo Deacon. Hi, my name is Orla McNeilis. You're listening to Dublin Digital Radio. This is The Recommendation Game, a film of the week podcast where we take turns to pick a movie the other person hasn't seen. Then we watch it and meet to discuss it. This week's film is The Truffle Hunters from 2020 and it was chosen by Orla. handful of men search for rare, expensive and delicious white alba truffles deep in the forest of Piedmont, Italy. The film was directed by Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw, produced by Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw, cinematography by Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw, edited by Charlotte Munch Brunston, and music by Ed Cortez. So Orla, why did you pick The Truffle Hunters, the sequel to Pig? Uh, yeah, so uh, I talked really briefly about this film whenever we did The Pig. Um, a few months ago. When did we do Pig, actually? I'm not checking. It will depress me too much. Um, yeah, so like the funny thing about Pig, or both funny and also poignant and heartbreaking, uh, that A, he doesn't really need the pig to go truffle hunting, but he just brings her because he loves her. And B, that most people don't use pigs to truffle hunt. They use dogs. Um, <laughs> which brings us to the joy that this unassuming <laughs> film is about how dogs are the fucking best um <laughs> oh god i love this film so much um and it's another short one um <laughs> yeah we can uh, we can talk later if we think it should be you know shorter or 10 hours longer i don't know um i love a lot of things about this film but um principally i love how fucking funny it is like i, I genuinely laugh out loud at like multiple points in this film and that's not something that happens that often um <laughs> a lot of the time it's just like really silly things like um whenever carlo and his wife uh are just sitting at the table washing tomatoes and like you know he keeps taking ones and she's like that's not washed yet that's not washed yet and then at some point he just goes i love fresh tomatoes <laughs> that's so charming and so funny but it's just like these like tiny little silly moments um and there's one point near the end where um i think it's sergio is uh he has built a little fire and he's like wearing just like wellies i think and he's warming his feet on the fire and they just start kind of like steaming and then kind of smoking <laughs> he's just sort of like eating his feet and like oh 
I don't know why that's funny, but it, it just is. Um, the two co-directors on this, um, they'd worked together on uh, one previous documentary that I haven't seen, uh, which is about uh, stock car racing in New Jersey, uh, which is apparently another sort of strange insular world that's like you know a, a kind of a a thing that's dying out populated by weird men um so michael dweck um he's like an artist and a photographer and stuff and he's he's based in the u.s um and then uh, gregory kershaw um he was the cinematographer um but he's co-director on this uh i think he lives in stockholm or something but basically after they'd made that film, they'd both independently of each other gone on holidays in uh, the Piedmont region in Italy and become obsessed with this weird world because they'd both been there out of season and they were like just, you know, completely overawed by the scenery and everything. And people were like, oh, you should be here in truffle season because it's full of like these strange old men, you know, climbing up the sides of cliffs and stuff. So they both ended up wanting to make a film about it, reconnected and then started following these guys. Like I think for about three years, it took them to like um, just basically gain their trust and, um, you know, indoctrinate themselves into this little world and stuff. Uh, and I think for, you know, like the first year, they didn't film anything. It was just them, you know, hanging out with these lads, basically. And um, <laughs> there's a great, um, <laughs> just such amazing characters. It's a great quote from, um, I think it's Gregory Kershaw. Um, it felt like we were in Italy in the 1960s and we were making a film about young men because that's how all of them interacted with the world. They have the energy of young men. They listen to the music of the youth, <clears throat> but they also have the drive of youth in every step they took. And yeah, obviously we've already talked about the like <laughs> the 60s, 70s influence on the poster. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you know how I love reading out crazy letterbox uh, reviews. This one's actually just hilarious. Uh, so <laughs> this person has put in a definitive ranking of characters met in the Truffle on Hunters in order of wholesomeness. Five. Carlo. Hate the game, not the player. <laughs> he just can't get enough of that truffle action. Special mention to his faithful companion, Tatina, for being so pumped up for a midnight jailbreak from their Italian cottage. Four. Angelo. A.K.A. Italian Saruman. Once had 50 marriage proposals, but is now so jaded by the capitalistic nature of the modern truffle game that he spends his time chopping wood, drinking wine, and swearing at his most despised typewriter. 3. Aurelio, Birba's papa, is 88 but is still open to finding a wild woman to marry, if only so that someone will take care of his precious dog when he is gone. Would rather let the secret of his truffle skills die with him than pass them on to literally anyone. 2. Carlo's wife, truly a saint. She just wants her 84-year-old husband to not die in the forest hunting truffles. Is that too much to ask? Number 1. Birba. <laughs> The pear-loving queen herself. She sits on tables. She eats from Papa's plate. She loves to be caressed. Worth at least 50,000 euro or a human child of equal value. <laughs> Real. A lot. Thank you, Danny. Uh, <laughs> on Unsurprisingly, it has a lot of likes. Um, <laughs> that is a very good review, in fairness. Uh, yeah, so there's also so the, the cinematography of this is just fucking beautiful. Uh, but there's also so many Easter eggs. I found a really good interview with them on um, actually Forbes of all places, um, where they uh, they're talking about like just the depth, like how they shot different things and everything. So I really, really love the opening shot. Um, 
because it 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 starts off feeling that you're looking straight down on them um and then it kind of like it feels like it tilts and as the more you look at it the more you see that he's actually like climbing on an almost vertical hill um it's actually not a drone they they'd uh <laughs> they'd gone to go filming with him that day and he's like tearing through the fucking hills um and they'd gone to rent equipment from this italian production house and on that day the only tripod they had was this like big bulky thing from the 60s so they were like jesus so they're running <laughs> they're running after him um so at the end they basically they were it was a he's on one side of a ravine they're on the other side uh, on a cliff basically filming him across and they're just like slowly tilting with him as he goes um it's <laughs> oh also uh shout out to uh the dog cam um <laughs> it's where they <laughs> So they tried to like use purpose-made harnesses um, from like GoPro and different companies and stuff and wouldn't give the proper uh, sort of uh, aesthetic that they wanted because they wanted it to feel, they wanted you to be able to see the dog's nose <laughs> so that you really get the sense of the sniffing along the ground and everything. Um, so they went to this like local cobbler and got him to like, you know, construct these harnesses to put the camera on. And then they, but the dogs kept going off and then coming back and losing the camera. So they like perfected and perfected this thing. And I was like, there's something great about that in this movie of like people who study and work for years and years and years to perfect this really specific craft. And that these guys are like <laughs> trying to get this like leather harness right for this dog cow. It's like something wonderful about that. Um, I was also very curious about um, how they actually shot this. Um, like, you know, were scenes ever prompted or, you know, because so, mu so much of it is just like these wide shots of these like little conversations and stuff. Um, but no, like it's by all accounts, like according to them anyways, most of the time they would go out and they would only film like a scene a day and they'd either go out into the, you know, the woods with them or whatever and like film all day. So they just kind of like set up the camera and, just film them for hours because a lot of it was just like people going through daily rituals like um many of the conversations they would witness were like little sort of repetitions of rhythms because you know these people are in each other's lives they know each other really well so they're a lot of the time they're having the same conversation over and over again so like whenever the lads are standing outside with the dogs like talking about their previous seasons and bragging about all the like Sergio was just like it's like yeah and then I you know I went out whenever there was a ban on and I got like 150 truffles and they're like yes of course you did <laughs> you know it's so like it's like how many times have they had this conversation where they're just like Oh no, it's Sergio. Oh god. Um <laughs> pretend we didn't see him. Um but even like the uh the seat of Carlo and his wife, um, so they would have uh dinner together every day at the exact same time, and they would end up having some form of the same conversation of her being like, Stop going out at night, you're gonna fall over, and then who the fuck is gonna look after us? You know, just being like, ah, you know. <laughs> so Someone pointed out that the film never really sort of drops into just like food porn. Like, you know, there's we have that one shot of the chef eating with like reverence for like three minutes. And then he just goes, I like it. It's good. <laughs> like a monotone. And then he just keeps eating. You know, it's never it never like becomes chef stable. And it's not that 
chef's table is not lovely and great and i like watching it and stuff and, and even something like pig like it has has all these scenes of like you know these like you know food porn or whatever but it's more the wholesomeness of what he's making himself in the forest as opposed to the like pretentious shit in the restaurant the art of the film is in like the process of these guys and the construction of these like um rembrandt like uh uh, constructions of these scenes of them where they're just like sitting under like a single light in a shed just chatting and like having cigarettes and drinking wine and in these like just beautiful perfect little locations they're going out and hunting these uh incredibly expensive precious rare beautiful things but like a lot of the time they're just eating them in really simple ways with like you know some anchovies and you know and or they're just having like broth and bread and you know beer is there just having some like like my bowl clean and stuff and it's just <sighs> yeah i i love this movie and uh i watched um i watched it the other night with my parents who were here and uh they really enjoyed it as well it was a really lovely experience so um ricardo are you gonna break my dreams what did you think of this film Nah, there's no way with <laughs> this movie. Like, <laughs> although fucking what's his name on uh, RogerEbert.com didn't like it. Well, Mart Mart Sollers Heiss or whatever his name is. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I didn't want to butcher it. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it's like people are entitled to having the wrong opinion, I suppose. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I really enjoyed it. I think it was the the most relaxing movie that we've ever done, probably. Um, or if it's not, it's up there. Even though there was a couple of moments that I've never been so terrified in my life as when the Carlo starts... Uh, not Carlo. The the guy that doesn't have a wife or kids. Oh, Aurelio, I think? Yeah, he has the dog that he keeps talking about what... the <gasps> Birba. Yeah, the, whenever he starts uh, screaming Birba uh, in the woods and she won't come... I'm like, oh my god, no, don't tell me, no. And then, like, it's so heartbreaking whenever they uh, announce that the other guy's dog died. But even that, but even amongst his dogs, they they had focused on Fiona as the dog. So you don't, you're not as obviously you're heartbroken because like that shouldn't happen to any dog kind of Mm. thing, but. It is kind of fucked up that they use strict nine, like to. And it's the to fact kill the that dogs. it's, it's not even. It's not even like. Um, it's not even the like creepy middlemen. It's the other hunters that do it. Imagine doing that to another person's dog, and you all yourself have dogs. Yeah, like I read somewhere as well that it's kind of interesting that the parts where it's not, uh, there's no, what you call it, there's no subtitles in the film. It's because what they're saying to the dogs is their own language. It's yeah. not like Piedmontese or Italian is its own thing. I do find it interesting as well that it is Piedmont because Piedmont is like this weird mixture of France and mm-hmm. Italy as a zone. It was even like a... Um, it is kind of French feeling at times. Well, Piedmont was uh, occupied by Napoleon for like 10 years or something and... It was also kind of Germanic at the time because it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, yeah. Because Italy was until like Garibaldi rocked up and we have all the <laughs> war of uh, Italian independence, uh, Italian unification that um, 
I'm glad the movie The Leopard makes no effort to try to explain because I've read books about the wars of Italian unification and I still don't know what the fuck happened. <laughs> it's like the it's the most Italian unification ever. It's like suddenly we were unified. Why? Who knows? <laughs> Let's see. Have pasta. some truffles. <laughs> and I do think that it is very like even Turin as a capital. It's a uh, it's meant to be a combination of paris and rome as a city mm. and it's quite interesting that way because it's like where the two places meet because it is piedmont is kind of like in the italian alps near the the border with france um and i think it, as even as a location as a people they're like extremely interesting because they're very french and very Italian as well. And that explains also why they're able to, some of the characters are able to swap between languages like very quickly mm. as if they, uh, well, like they're probably born that way or like if they're in that business, they're probably doing business across the border quite a lot of the time because mm. it's, it's nearby. Um, like I, I do like their, like Piedmont is supposed to be very like matter of fact people. And I think that as a, a good example of that is that the Maseratis are made in Piedmont because the, um, that's the where car? the factories are or whatever. Yeah, the Maserati oh. is the, the car, yeah. Well, like all the major uh, car manufacturers in uh, in Italy at some point were in Piedmont, like Fiat and stuff, but they all left. At the mo- like, But Maserati still is there. But Maserati launched a car in the 60s, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Maserati Quattro Porte. I, it just means the Maserati with four doors. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like Porta. <laughs> that is so well, straightforward. It it's like it... a luxury. It's a luxury fucking uh, sports car. And it's like, <laughs> it's a Maserati with four doors. That, that It says exactly what it says in the tin. Like, what more well, do you need? That's more things should be named like that instead of being giving stupid names like um, Citroen C4. Uh, was it Airdrop? Airmast? Aircross. Aircross. <laughs> what air is it crossing? Uh, no, nothing fast, anyways. <laughs> but, uh, Shout out to the car to rent it in Glasgow. <laughs> obviously, like the the idea, like uh, the the dog cam was wonderful. Uh, I. It reminded me of Better Call Saul, uh, funnily enough, because Better Call Saul has like a proud tradition of putting cameras yeah, randomly yeah, into places. in weird little angles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is like often at the oh, start of episodes, it's just like a little kind of. <laughs> yeah, somebody's taking the bin out, and the camera is like inside the bin or something like that. And I found that kind of uh, a, a nice link, uh, like the the cinematography is it's unbelievable this movie it's mm. like you're saying that uh, 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 you mentioned Rembrandt uh, mm. it is very painterly that even the tableaus are very symmetrical a lot of the time they're like there's a lot of geometry that they find when shooting and probably it comes back to what you said that they were shooting only one thing per day so it would give them time to actually try to find the shot or the place rather than spend it the time actually filming and i think that more importantly that all every character is um a character and also uh, yeah. instantly um differentiable from each other 
and present a separate uh, um, a separate point of view from each other when it comes yeah. to truffle hunting. Uh, the only thing that I'd be interested in, the, even if it was like one brief scene, if there was like a young truffle hunter that he interviewed briefly to see, mm. like just to see if that part, if it is true that they keep saying that like the old times were the best, or is it are they just old people? You know, because yeah. even I, I'm like fucking thirty two years old, and I'm already getting to that stage that it's like it was so much better in my day, or whatever. And then I have to go. No, I can't be like this guy complaining about TikTok and shit like that. I just don't understand it. The shot at the end, whenever he climbs out the window, like, uh, it's just beautiful. Like, he's very uh, charismatic little guy, uh, Carlo. Uh, his wife is, like, double the size of him and, like, half his age as well, which is kind of, like, cute as well. Like, I, uh, it's very, I, was, I, find, I find it very hard to place an age on her because sometimes when you see her a little much closer, I think she might... I think it's her the fact that her hair is not grey that kind of deceives her age a little bit. Cause I think well, she, like, I don't think that she's 87 at all because she mm. keeps, like, mentioning how old he is and mm. how, like, they need to, like, look after him, that he's mm. the one that is going. And also, like... Carlo is like, you know, if you told me he was 120, I would have believed you as well. Like, yeah, but at the same time, he has the most energy. Like, I do think as well that it's like, it brings up that argument about what do you, why would you stop? Like, if yeah. you're 87, you might as well just keep going until like, you croak you. croak yeah. in the, the like that is a beautiful way to go if you love being in the woods getting truffles if you just don't come back one day that's such a nice like when you're 80 like i'd get it i'd be more like don't go and do that if you're 40 and then you can fucking break your leg and then the rest of your life can be mm. ruined or whatever but if you're 87 and you have that energy like Jesus, I wish that, like, whenever, if I do get to 87, I'm able to, like, climb out a window. <laughs> like, it, not, never mind going truffle hunting. Just the window part is uh, quite impressive. Especially because he's not exactly tall, so he has to, like, do the little jump. And But he does it with such pep. Like, there's so yeah. much energy in everything he does. And, like, Titina. Um... The way that it's like, oh, yeah, the, the, you, you don't listen to me. It's like, I listen to you. No, you don't. Uh, my parents are staying uh, in an Airbnb not too far from here. Uh, on the night we moved them in, um, they were like, oh, we'll go get a nice quick dinner. So there was a very charming little Italian restaurant um, down the street. So we went down there and just had like the most delicious, beautiful little dinner. The woman who ran the place was just super cool, really charming. Um, but she was talking about her parents and, um, I can't remember what it's actually called, but she was talking about how all the time growing up, her dad would never eat this vegetable because it was from another, it was from another region. And, um, he would just stubbornly not eat it because it was like that's I don't eat that here, and his mom would her, her mom would like try and cook it for the family, and he'd be like, no, I don't eat that. And then one night he uh, he went out to like a party with his friends, and someone made it, and he ate it and loved it. I came home and told his wife, and she didn't talk to him for a month. <laughs> I was like, oh, so Italian. <laughs> oh, rapini, that was it. Sorry, rapini was the uh, was the vegetable. <laughs> 
That's so good. It's just like, I fucking dare you. Like literally coming home being like, oh, I like repeating it. <laughs> I had possibly one of the most delicious meals I've had in that place. And it was, um, it was a pistachio um, pasta, like, cr- pa- like pistachio cream sauce with tuna. It was fucking amazing. Like just so much flavor. Like, oh my God, I like licked the plate. It was amazing. And then for dessert, we had, um, my dad's really into tiramisu. So it was like um, affogato, but with like tiramisu ice cream. Oh, I, I make tiramisu. a nice tiramisu. Never made it for me. Uh, Sorry? <laughs> never made it for me. I made it for you for New Year's whenever you came. <gasps> oh, I was only thinking about the pork belly we had the other day. And you're like, thanks. Like, what a way to try to throw me under the bus to the like fucking podcast <laughs> o- audience. Like, you never I actually, made me. I haven't made that many desserts for you. <laughs> but the one time that I make a dessert and you were like, oh, yeah, this is the best tiramisu I ever had. What a fucking lie. You forgot about it the next day. Um, anyways, back to this movie. <laughs> Yeah, like I do think that the 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 best thing about the movie is it's a socialist uh, bent that is like very anti-capitalist, and I don't think that the the distributors realize that how badly portrayed they are because they're not shown as evil, but they're shown as like drug the dealers. Problem. Yeah, the, you're uh, ripping and, off these lovely old men. <laughs> like. Like, in fairness, I think it's also part of the, um, like, the way the capitalism work. Because Mm. the markup itself that they put into the the truffles is not that insane, let's say. Because if you consider, like, cost of, like, holding it, doing the bidding, whatever, that he sells a, a, a thing of, like, really, really top of the range um truffles for like four grand for a kilo of it and then he buys 350 kilos uh, 350 grams of somebody for 550 euro so if you're like multiply by three whatever just like uh that'd be one and a half grand you're not like i don't think that the one that was like four and a half grand that he sold it was uh, the same quality as the 550 euro as in like that it was better quality but let's mm. say that that's the same quality, let's say, that he got. It's only, what, by three per five? It's only, like, a three times markup, which is not insane to when it comes to farming. Like, if you think about, like, how much, like, a butcher pays for a cow. Yeah. It's way more than the price of the actual cow what's worth the little package of meat that you pick up in tesco yeah but then you go and buy like let's say if you go and buy a fucking you know like a tomahawk 28 day age steak that is a kilo it's like fucking 50 quid Mm. for like 50 grams it's like that is like imagine like if you're like uh, uh, projecting the rest of the the price of the cow obviously not that all the you'd be able to charge the same for all the different cuts or whatever. But you're talking about like 50, 60 times markup. Yeah. But I think is that the difference is that it doesn't match the actual labor 
that it takes to go and the risks that they take both emotionally and physical that it should match it, like some costs don't it's like uh, Mujica, the Uruguayan president, whenever he, uh, the ex-Uruguayan president, wherever he, wherever he was in the UN, and he gave an anti-capitalist speech. Obviously, my grandparents hated it. <laughs> uh, that he says that the cost of something that you buy is not the money that you're paying for. It's the amount of time that it took you to gather that money because that's what you've actually lost. So, like, if it took you, like, 20 hours to buy a pair of shoes or whatever, you've lost those 20 hours. They're gone or whatever. So, it better be, like, a pair of shoes that will, like, regain your 20 hours somehow, let's say. Like, either, like, improving your posture, blah, blah, blah. So, like, the problem is that with poor people is that you're wasting the same amount of hours. But then you pay for a pair of shoes that is just there to be in your feet. They're not actually improving your life. They're just there so you're not shoeless like considering like some of these people like in the movie don't even have fucking electricity in their house but you never know i I found it quite interesting that you never know if it's like a life choice or not like how they go Mm. because at some point it is like piedmont is not like exactly that remote you know it's like turin is one of the biggest cities in italy and France is just next door. Switzerland is up. Like, there's connections to Switzerland. It's not... Even if you consider Italy as a place, it's not Sardinia or Corsica that are, like, islands in the middle of nowhere that are kind of, like, you only have tourism as a, as a mm. proposition. Like, even for food, you have, like, Turin is massive. There's, like, loads of amazing restaurants. There's a direct market for what they're selling already in the area that they're in. Italy's um, rural infrastructure is not renowned, world renowned for its quality, but it's also not the. It, like, even in Uruguay and Brazil, most of the place, if you have a bit of money, that these guys are not completely poor. Because they even They're they also said farmers as well. That's the thing, is that they also and have. They a, own the land as well, yeah. which is like, it shows that. It's this weird kind of thing because. Like, part of me, I'm like, oh, yeah, proletariat and all that shit. And then it's like, oh, yeah, but I own hectares and people come into my land. And and it's like, but it's a forest. <laughs> and they're talking about nature and all these things as being something that you can't own. It's part of the world. But at the same time, they own a part of it and exploit it. So it was this kind of like interesting i think interesting uh, dynamic that because it is a very much a documentary that outside the, uh, the 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 top brass kind of people it is more like interesting on the how quirky the characters are and how like lovable they are and how quite like almost like pinpointing that you have to be like not to turn into one of the greedy guys that like put poison because it becomes mm. a competition it has to be that you enjoy the process of uh of the truffle hunt that like carlo likes the fact that he hears the owls at night yeah i love when he tries to put the chicken to bed that is the funniest oh thing oh my ever god seen. the chicken oh my god he keeps like almost catching it and the chicken and he's just like oh jesus it's so oh god it's it's so fucking funny 
I do think this is by far also the soggiest movie we <laughs> we've done so far. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like such a sort of beautiful like verdant i don't know if that's the right word uh time of year because it's so like the actual truffle hunting season is only part of the year obviously so it's really like everything is so like mossy and like <laughs> there's just rotting leaves everywhere and you know um i funny that you're saying about how that uh, that so much of it is a lifestyle choice that you know, whenever you see Sergio out and like, you know, his clothes aren't fancy, his car isn't fancy. He has a very nice drum setup, though, <laughs> with the little lights and everything. I was like, oh yeah, when he's outside, yeah. <laughs> Which I think might be yeah, one but, of my. But favorite his drums cuts. are taped together, though. Are they? I didn't actually look too closely. Yeah, at them. there's like there. <laughs> it's almost that it's like yeah, he bought a really nice set of drums in the nineties and just fucking <laughs> drummed the shit out of them and instead of buying new ones. He keeps repairing them, but like uh, the quality of his drums, uh, like really eclipsed the how badly cleaned his car is. It's like one of the most. <laughs> the scene, like another sometimes seeing, like feeling the camera as you're watching something can be quite enjoyable, and you really get it whenever he's driving along. Uh, the really muddy path. So like his, he, you see him go through a really muddy part um, and it's like, you know, the the, uh, the Jeep is like going from side to side and he's singing and like the dog is howling. And then as like the, the, the obviously vehicle that has the camera person in it goes through the same thing. You see the same shake as it's going through the same mud. And I find that very charming. Um, <laughs> there's a bit, whatever, um, uh, what do you call him? Angelo? Uh, it's like up a ladder and like an apple tree or something and he's just like chatting to your man and he's just he's on what looks to be not a very safe ladder either and i was just watching it kind of being like careful <laughs> so piedmontese arrow man one thing we haven't talked about which um because there's so many other great things in this film is uh the soundtrack which is really lovely um i really really love the soundtrack i meant to actually um look into the soundtrack more about um um the particular tracks that are chosen and stuff and um like what was composed and um yeah because it's really fabulous i did find it hilarious whenever they're like drinking the wine that they have just a mountain of empty bottles it's like nobody oh, yeah. Just... Yeah, yeah. and also that they're just clearly making their own wine as well because like the one part carlo and his wife there's like a whole extended sequence of them just pouring bags of or like little crates uh of um uh grapes into what i'm imagining is just like the thing that they smushed the grapes in it's just them pouring grapes in pouring grapes in you know <laughs> like, yeah it's a great oh. presser yeah like uh uh i would have appreciated carlo and uh tatiana whatever the name of tatina. the dog is uh uh like crushing the grapes to hit their feet or something oh. <laughs> even though i do think the probably wine that is crushed by a dog is not tasty i'm sure that's a method that's employed somewhere in the world but i i did find the uh completely emotional whenever carlo uh angelo angelo yeah uh, yeah. whenever angelo is trying to explain the, to the dog that like one day he might mm. go on holidays to america and not be able to come back so the dog is gonna have to be able Reminds me whenever I had to move from Brazil and I had a dog at the time 
and she had been a rescue dog so she had already been abandoned once and i i would sit there and try to explain to her that it wasn't that we didn't love her that like when we were leaving whatever it's just that we had to leave the country or whatever and it was also like traumatic for my mom as well because whenever we got her we didn't know that she had like a really bad case of uh like worms so the dog nearly died they got really skinny and my mom would have to like force feed her medicine because obviously you can't just explain to a dog here take this disgusting thing it's gonna make <laughs> you better you know you have to like grab the dog and force it down its wrap it up in a towel it. and hope for the best <laughs> and like she was super skinny like you could feel her bones and everything mm. and then she became like like majestic let's say she was a year old when we had to give her back and i'd be like playing with her every day and stuff and uh, it was the like the toughest thing of like leaving brazil it was like not leaving my dad behind i didn't give a shit about that it was like her name was elza after the elza. lioness from born free and uh, because she was a mix of a Bra brazilian fila and a german shepherd so she was like a German Shepherd, but huge. Like she was only a year old and she was rather bigger than like most German Shepherds. But it was hilarious because she was already like massive when she was like six months old, but she was still a puppy. So mm -hmm. if you got like a, like a dash sound, like barking at her, she'd get fucking terrified, even though she could like, just kill the dog <laughs> if, if she wanted. Like she'd be like three times the size. And uh, yeah, like it, it touched the nerve that scene because like, yeah. Uh, like i miss elsa it's one of those things that like uh even now we've been talking about like thinking about getting a dog here and i'm always terrified about uh, getting a dog because every time that i got a dog i had to move oh. and leave the dog behind i haven't had a dog past two years like uh the age of two years so like i always fear that it's like oh. you know i do have to um i do have to deliver some very sad news that uh Aurelio, um, who's um who has Birba, he actually died after they made the movie. Apparently, um, it wasn't like COVID or anything. He just had a heart attack really randomly. Aurelio is the, which one? Sorry, he's like the old guy by himself. Okay. Yeah. He went to America and didn't come back. So now I'm like, where's Birba? Did he find a nice woman to take her? <laughs> that's such a pity it, it, it is a pity like that mo this movie made quite a bit of money like considering what it is like a million euro in the box mm. office which is not insignificant for like a documentary of this scale but uh, it's kind of a pity it came out during covid as well because mm. you'd imagine that it would have made more money kind of thing but i think that is kind of interesting and in how documentaries have moved to especially uh cinematic documentaries moved to a more avant-garde mode yeah while movies have progressively gotten more and more Formulaic. basic <laughs> the, even like romantic like mid-budget romantic comedies have all the same look oh it's like we need to like have a clever fucking hook or something you can't just make a romantic mm. comedy anymore it's you yeah, know it's just really depressing because it's depressing when you know you've been watching movies from the 90s and you'd be going don't make them like this anymore you know <laughs> it's like 
the 90s. It's not even that we're talking about like the 40s and 50s and 60s, like the golden age of Hollywood. We're actually talking about the 1990s and going like, man, we took risks. <laughs> the back in the day, whenever people used to say, oh, they don't make them like this anymore. It was speaking about the quality of the movies. Now is that we actually don't make them like this anymore. Like they don't get made. It's like, with the exception of westerns and musicals, they're like the two genres that kind of disappeared in the 60s and 70s. Like, without, with the exception of still, like, largely what the output of Hollywood was in the 50s and 60s and up to the 90s was the same. You had, like, your A pictures, B pictures, C pictures, D pictures. Like, the qualities were very within them based on, like, are you getting, like, a fucking... B picture director that just does B pictures and is the guy that you just want to like give him like 20 million to so the movie makes 40 million and that's it like you just want to like double your money and, so it's a racetrack and there's a heist <laughs> or you go and get somebody that is like like the killing that is like, oh yeah somebody that's like an up-and-comer but we can't give him an A picture yet so let's give him a bit of a B picture see how he gets on does he hate us after the movie is finished or whatever? Does it make money, etc.? So, like, I do think the like to a less like I'm kind of disappointed like with streaming services because like up to but like four years ago, uh, there was actually whenever there was like a, an actual competition to mm. bring movies into streaming services like quality directors and stuff that. Not only the quality was there, but also it's like something like be um, so Beast of No Nation, the Kari uh, mm. Fukunaga movie with um, Idris Elba. Yeah, that wouldn't have been able to get a theat theatrical release without the backing of like, oh yeah, we're just making this for our content, but we also want to show that we're making prestige things. So if you want to watch, we'll take new movies that are, yeah, exactly. And I think the like the so-called algorithm like eventually there eventually every streaming platform becomes big so big that then the the idea of risk but also like the human decision making disappears and then everything becomes mm -hmm. kind of like a look you know like the, there's a netflix look even like with stranger things and tv shows they they're shot exactly the same it's the same camera angles the same it's the same bloody camera <laughs> well no that's not fair because like obviously a lot of the same cameras are used but it's more that they're using the same cameras but using them in the same way so it's like have you seen barry Oh, I watched the first season of it. I, I should finish it, actually. Like, the third season uh, so far is unbelievable. It's, like, better. Like, it's very kind of a uh, bizarre show. But the, in Barry, there's a... One of the characters gets to, like, have a show in a streaming platform. And mm -hmm. I guess, like, 100% in Rotten Tomatoes. And it still gets cancelled because of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. Like they're talking to the president of the streaming companies. Like, I wish there was somebody that I I could talk to, but there isn't. And it's like, but you you own the the business. It's like <laughs> yes. It's like and you and you cried yesterday in the premiere of the pilot. And it's like yes, and I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like uh, I think that like, but at the same time, it's like documentaries has always been in my point of view somewhere the 
experimentation both narrative and cinematically has been because even this is like a very small production team a very small movie but it feels epic just because mm. you put like a 50 mil lens and you frame the the camera properly and you have good sound mixing it just feels cinematic you don't need anything else than that and it's like that bare bones approach that really highlights how movies are not don't need anything that they don't need to be muddy fucking cgi gobbledygook they don't need to be a bullet train with profit <laughs> a cgi bullet train <laughs> it's like let's make snow snow piercer with no ideas <laughs> but make it a guy Ritchie movie uh, one thing i will say is uh i feel incredibly jealous of these two guys that they spent three years, during which I'm sure they did other stuff, but at the same time, spent three, got to spend three years of their lives just doing this project. And I'm like... <sighs> yeah, like, at the same time, I do find that it is, like, um, it's the issue I always have with documentary and why I'll never be a documentary maker. If I ever made a documentary, it would be purely based on, like, a fucking, you know, Scorsese-type... Uh, Talking about old uh, Italian movies that influenced you... <laughs> No, more like yeah, the the Bob Dylan projects that he did, they're largely archival with the permission of the person that owns the archive and is about, uh, etc. Because I find the like the the power dynamics and ethics of documentary making so fucking difficult to navigate that I I feel, you know, even like with Carlo, that if he was just because I'm filming him if he still is going out because of my presence because obviously the moment that you put a camera on somebody it changes mm. the entire perspective of their lives and what they're doing so if it is the case that carlo keeps going to the woods because i put the camera on him and He's, then something happens to him yeah. it's like i didn't do anything but you did like and it's like a completely unintended consequences not even talking about um about how you're portraying him or which way you're 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 who you're backing like same as with the the chefs and the the money people in this movie they're like really shown as people like there are people in a way they're not just shown as faceless villains but also as people that are part of the problem because just because of their greed increases the greed of the truffle hunters that are there to compete. And then, the, the, like, it's a top-down kind of... Um, a, a kind of top-down problem that, uh, like, the greedier the top guy is, the greedier the bottom person is going to be. and The more risks they'll the, take. And... Yeah, and also that they're, like, they will buy truffles from people that they shouldn't be, that they know mm. that the business is bad and these guys know that that that's the case that maybe this guy that is talking to them is one of the guru guys and he just buy it from repeatable sources but there are others that would just you just show up to his doorstep with truffles and he'll buy it you know mm. and i think that the whole ethics thing is always interesting when i watch a documentary i always try to consider what would i do no how would like, i square it yeah well like one for one i wouldn't fucking even try to square or do it and if i did it it wouldn't be to the skill level that these filmmakers brought to this movie so like there's no way in that front 
nobody's gonna be doing the fucking podcast about any documentary that i make ever but, um, famous last words my friend well except if we make a fucking podcast on one of my imagine yeah that's what i'm gonna do oh my god i'm just gonna start making documentaries or movies and every Picking pick them? that i pick is my <laughs> movies because certainly nobody has seen it so there's no chance that you have seen them oh my god i love this idea in um, saying that what is your favorite thing or any final <laughs> thoughts before we move to favorite things um no i'm just i'm really glad you liked it um it's just such a wonderful wonderful little uh wonderful little film um i think uh sorry i'm just looking at the cast that they have on um uh on letterboxd and they have like charlie the dog fiona the dog <laughs> nina the dog titina the dog um i think my favorite thing is birba <laughs> because like dogs like they all have personalities, but some dogs have the strongest personalities. And like she just, you know, and you can see her listening to everything that he's saying to her and stuff. And that, you know, when he's like talking to her in their own little language and, you know, the little secrets that they say to each other and stuff. And it's just it's really, really magical whenever it's magical whenever you can see any real relationship like that on screen. Um, but there's something even more wonderful whenever like. One of them is an animal as cute as Birba. Um, I want to put out a petition to adopt Birba. Um, what was your favorite thing? I think my favorite, th my favorite thing was the cinematography. I think that it is mm -hmm. like a very beautiful movie, and uh, and also the way that it made me feel like it's uh, a very relaxing kind of like. Except whenever the dogs are in peril, like. Uh, Usually I don't give a fuck about people, but don't get a dog in peril. Uh, like even in movies is a quick way. It's a cheap way. And whenever you're doing fiction to raise tensions, but in documentary, obviously this is uh, telling an important aspect of their lives that it's not only like that. They are not risking their lives as much as their dogs are because they don't mm -hmm. know there's even like an industry about trying to protect the dogs in like the guy doing the the mufflers and stuff to try to get them not to even touch the bait yeah. so um you know that whenever like somebody's actually designing those things is that there's enough reason for yeah. it to to exist and it, that's uh deeply troubling i do like also the the aspect of how it uh it refers to the, the industry as a whole as a problematic top-down issue, which is hugely appreciated. But yeah, like I think that it is a, like, what was the other documentary that we watched that was largely non-narratively and like uh, with a lot of uh, kind of vignettes? It was also like 80 minutes long and it was about like a town in America. I can't remember. Oh, uh, um, by, uh, what's his name? Um um it's like far from the night light or something what the hell is that called there was like some there was the name of the town then by like by evening light oh, or something oh yeah, yeah oh god i can't remember i love that movie uh what was your least favorite thing my least favorite thing was uh, i think that the only like movie was because i do agree with you that i felt quite sad whenever the dog dies and stuff or even the the level of threat and uh peril that i i felt when i 
it, it is mentioned that they get poisoned so every time that they uh shell for their dogs and the dogs don't return immediately i'm like oh they're a goner boy but i think the uh movie wise it really works and also it's like telling point i think the so not like i much would have rather if the dogs had survived obviously but at the same time it is like as a movie part it actually it really works as part of the narrative of the documentary but i think that the only missing part is even if it was just like i didn't even need like a young character to be there for the entire movie like the same way that he follows these old timers i just wanted to see their perspective because every other perspective of the business yeah is told or even if it is the case that maybe there is no new truffle hunters you know that everybody's kind of middle-aged yeah. or whatever but it'd be kind of interesting to for that to either be pointed out or to actually go and search for somebody that is just starting out to feel how mm. insular it is as well because clearly they're saying that they work with each other purely because they know each other for years how hard it'd be for like one uh, like to gain trust and exactly the it's like do you only do it if you're part of a family like the way that they're talking about angelo that is like if you don't have any kids if you had kids would you pass on your secrets (laughs) and he's like no yeah that's the weird thing is that most of them were taught by their fathers so it would have been like a generational thing but none of them there that we know of seem to have passed it down to any children or you know and it's like why and it's kind of interesting in a way to complain about it becoming all like capitalistic and these new people and blah, blah, blah. When, well, you could have created the new generation that could have followed like, you know, the, you know, the old ways or whatever, you know, or maybe that's like just an unspoken thing that maybe, you know, they did train them, but they went off and became evil. So, yeah, I think getting that perspective. Or maybe they just went known. to like the big city, the big schmuck. Yes. <laughs> I hate this town. I hate truffles. Um, yeah, maybe. But I think, yeah, just having some kind of a, a nod to it would have been interesting. Um, that was uh, The Truffle Hunters, a absolutely delightful film. That um, It's uh, pretty widely available. Like I rented it on YouTube for like $4 or something. Um, yeah, in Europe, like, it's $9.99. To rent? Yeah, you can what? only buy it on YouTube in Europe. Oh, but yeah, get out there and watch it. It's only 84 minutes long. Um, get your VPN. Worth the tenner, anyways. Yeah, definitely. Just Want get as many people. people in to have like a truffle hunter party. So you only be like <laughs> chip in 250 each or something. <laughs> yeah. And then everyone puts in 50 euro ahead for the truffles. Uh, so if they want to go find our old documentary episodes, Ricardo, where can they find us? They can find us on Facebook, The Recommendation Game, on Twitter, at The Rec Game on monday every second monday on dublin digital radio or back episodes are on your podcaster of choice or in spotify and dublin digital mix cloud and that's about it our, our email is the recommendation game at gmail.com next week's film is ricardo's pick <coughs> ricardo what are you picking i'm picking uh, monsieur hulot's holiday or mr hulot's holiday but mm-hmm. i think monsieur hulot is better Tractati. Yeah. It's been um, a long time. <laughs> let's see how it goes down. It's it's been like more than three years, anyways. Jesus. No, there, it can't be more than three years. The I wasn't in Canada, definitely not. And also, 
guess what? <laughs> I've been in Canada three years. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was Arna Matilas. And I was Ricardo Deacon. Thanks for listening. See you next week.